could happen. So you know what? I'm just going to live my life. This is where I am. I'm just going to live it and enjoy. So I think I did have to get to that place where I forget it. I don't care. You know, but that could also be a defense mechanism because I'd been, my expectation had always been crushed. You know, each time I expect, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to meet my family. I'm going to jump. And then, no, you're not going. You're not going. So it was a way of helping me cope. So it was a coping mechanism. But actually, years later, one thing I did do was go through therapy because I realized that that feeling of abandonment was still there. And if I didn't go through therapy, I was going to go through a life being overprotective of my children because I never wanted them to experience what I experienced. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Matt Brown, and you're listening to the Every L Podcast. Each episode, we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L's a loss. So sit back, relax, and do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go. Hello folks and welcome to another episode of Every L Podcast where we can explore when people have gone through certain things in life, is it really an L in the terms of a loss or is it something else? Because I'd like to think, enough, if no one else, that there's a lesson in everything you go through, there's something you've gained from everything you go through, but sometimes even up until now, even though something might have happened to you years ago, you don't quite see that yet or believe it, but yet you're still here, which for me is a big plus. I say all that to say this, I have another amazing guest on. Now, how did I meet you? So I met this particular guest through a dad group that I'm part of, Music Football Fatherhood. And long and short, they didn't want me. They wanted the founder. Founder was busy, but liked the idea and said, Matt, do you want to do it? I'm available. So after picking back, say, I'm available. Air, nothing but air for like hours upon hours. And I felt, I was fine about it to be fair. <laughs> I was fine. I was absolutely fine. But um, yeah, eventually it was like, okay, I'll have the sloppy seconds, that's fine. So <laughs> I, I, I I was invited along. It was for a Twitter space conversation, I believe. I asked about um, men's uh, take on situation. I can't remember the exact topic, but. Grief. I, grief. Oh yeah, oh gosh. For you guys know about me and the twins, right? That that conversation is a grief. I love I love my kids. Do not underestimate what I'm saying or misinterpret what I'm saying. But the life I thought I was building for myself with just two, two children. It looked very different now with three. So the building that was being built got knocked down. And guess who knocked it down? Me. And I tried reusing some of the bricks, couldn't reuse them. Didn't didn't fit in with the blueprint now. So Grief was very much at the fore at the time of being asked this question. So it kind of felt like a bit of a blessing and a curse or just for me to vent to people in a way that was healthy and productive rather than just whinging. But I actually love my kids. I am so I would not change a thing for the life I have right now. But going back, we had a I think the conversation went quite well, even though I probably went off at length like I do here. But it was really nice to have the opportunity by two women to share my perspective as a dad, as a male about grief 
our perspective, things that women may not see because they've got so much of their own stuff they've got to contend with. And I really like what they do and what they're about. And I think, obviously, the show notes are going to have information about what they do. But it's just nice knowing that people have the safe space to discuss certain topics that need to be discussed. Similar to what we do here, but just in a different format and just in a different place. And I'm here for it. So I have a fantastic guest in Chioma. Her name is actually Chioma, but I didn't feel comfortable singing her name because it makes me feel like I say it like a Korean name, but I, I'm, I'm dreadful with names, people. I'm sorry. But Chioma is an amazing individual. She's earnest. She's hardworking. She puts herself in uncomfortable positions not just to be difficult, but just because sometimes you need to do it to make the right waves in life. And that's someone I just got to, I've just got a vibe with. I've got to. I've got to respect the hustle. So I have Chioma, who please introduce yourself in a way that you see fit. And you have to sing your name like I've been doing it. <laughs> that introduction, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. I was cracking up. I see you saying it. Because when you asked me how would my mom say my name, I was like, yeah, that's how she would say it. So thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Right. Well, thank you for, um, you know, inviting me on today. Really excited to be here. Um, it's a real pleasure. I'm really excited to talk, to speak today. So my name is Chioma Fanawapo and I'm an award-winning youth practitioner. So I work with young people for a number of years um, I'm also really passionate about diversity and inclusion. So currently, um, give talks in schools about diversity and inclusion. I'm also a mum of two boys. Still can't believe I have a 17-year-old. Gosh, um, who is six foot? He makes me yeah. I say he's my bodyguard now, actually. So I've, I've got I've got I've got bodyguard and and a ten-year-old. So um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here today. So thank you for inviting me, Matt. No, thank you very much. Um, six foot, that is quite tall. Although, uh, if it helps you, I'm six foot three. <laughs> oh, okay. I've, I've not got to that age yet where I start shrinking, so I'm quite happy. That would be an L for real. <laughs> there would be no benefit from that. <laughs> like, in my day, I was six foot three. How tall are you now, daddy? Five foot 11. <laughs> what do you mean? I'll be putting the shoes with platforms on. I'd have no shame in that whatsoever. <laughs> You bring back the platforms. Bring back the platforms. Oh, hell yeah. Be like, is this the 70s? In my head it is, yeah. We're making this work. So as we get into this, I, I don't know why I'm such a clown. I really am weird. Um, we're going to discuss your first L, which mm-hmm. I'm happy for you to sort of wind up and take from the top as we explore it a little bit further. Yeah. And your L that you want to discuss is growing up without my parents has made me passionate about supporting parents. So that feels quite a large topic to unpack. So yeah. please go to the top and explain, obviously, as much as you're comfortable explaining, when this sort of feel it's relevant to start the conversation. Okay. So, um, so it's interesting because my story is set in Nigeria, so where I was born. And when I was aged about, hmm, try and think how old I was, I was probably... About six, my dad decided to come to the UK to seek a better life and bring the rest of the family. So my mum then joined him and then, you know, um, my siblings joined and then I was due to join. And unfortunately, due to the hostile immigration rules and stuff, it took 
about nine years for me to join my family. And so it wasn't a fault of my parents. They thought we'd all be united as one big happy family. Um, but unfortunately, it just didn't happen that way. And interestingly, my story resonates with some people from the Windrush generation who say came to the UK and sent for their families. And sometimes they didn't, they left their children in the Caribbean, came to the UK to seek a better life. And sometimes their children didn't join them too much later. So I remember seeing a show, um, and I can't think of what's called now. And that story really resonated with me because it was, I think it was nine nights, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, and that resonated with me because I never thought that was the experience of people from the children of the Windrush as well. Um, so, yeah, so that was my story. And um, when I was 18, I eventually joined my family and it was a culture shock because, you know, I had been in Nigeria and they were here. So lots of things to unpack and learn and unlearn. But it led me to some of the work I do today, supporting parents. So something else that I do is really, because um, I never wanted my children to go through what I went through. So I was really intentional about learning about child development. So I trained as a teacher, worked in schools for a number of years, and then um, also then trained as a, as a youth worker, but also youth practitioner. And that taught me a lot about adolescent development. But what was really important was that each stage of my learning of child development, my I was learning that before my son, my first son, who's now 17, was actually born. So when he arrived here, I already knew quite a lot about child development. And then by the time he was a teenager, I already knew a lot about adolescent development and the fact that their brain doesn't develop till they're 25 properly. Um, but all those tools really helped me to raise my children because I said I never wanted them to grow up without um, myself or the family or even their dad. And so it's led to some of what I do today, really getting alongside families. So I, I also am a parent coach and a teen coach and actually have a feature in Forbes from some time, about two years ago, a little article, part of an article, paragraph in Forbes anyway. Um, that's my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> One of many things. <laughs> well, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, so I think something that when I think of the years I worked with young people, so for many years I ran a youth club. And one of the things I saw about young people was that they wanted a place where they could belong and where they could feel safe and accepted. Because I always say we, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that we all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted um, and we all want to belong. And so, as parents and as people, it taught me a lot that just like I wanted that love as a child growing up, that, that that is still the greatest human need to be loved and accepted. And so it's taught, led me to the work that I do. Although it was an L, I didn't grow up with my family, I didn't grow up with my siblings, but it's made me so much more passionate about not letting that happen to my children, but also having conversations with parents and equipping them with the tools. So at the weekend, I was invited to speak about raising emotionally resilient children. And one of the things I was talking about was really looking at things like emotional intelligence and how important it is that is as important as IQ. Because sometimes we think of children and their academics and we don't think enough about if we teach them those soft skills, those emotional skills on how to know themselves and understand their needs and who they are and value themselves. It is taught me to then do the same with my children, but also in turn teach that to parents. 
And so, although it was an L, I grew up, I could have been angry. I remember at one point I was a real angry teenager because I was like, oh, no one loves me. No one cares for me. And you can't, you can't imagine it now. You, you can't actually imagine. But yeah, I, grew, I was an angry teenager because I was like looking for love in all the wrong places, thinking I just wanted to be loved and accepted for who I was. And because I didn't have that in my family, looking for it in relationships and boys. But I realized at a certain age, probably about 18, 19, that my faith really helped me to overcome that, that one, I had a God that loved me. But then when I came to join my family, I started to understand that this love is so important. So really encourage parents to get to love their children, get to know them. Um, because I think when you do that, you can build a relationship with them that lasts forever. That is that is very tough to imagine just because my mum and dad uh, were in Rush Generation and I've heard the story about when they came over and mum and dad, well, their mum and dad didn't come over till many years later and then ones or whatever else. And everyone's situation is quite unique, but at the same time, not dissimilar to one another's when you really deep it. However, from your point of view, mm-hmm. I can't imagine my parents getting on a form of transportation that takes them for, away from where I am to another country and I don't see them for not even a few hours, not even a day, years. And this is all before the internet has this type of technology where you can see each other, not even just on a computer. I'm talking about on your phone. Like you can do FaceTime and stuff like that very easily. And it don't even cost you anything. I remember times where my mum would go, would leave me at my uncle's and I'll start barling. I'll just sit on the stairs by the front doors barling until my mum comes back because I just missed her. It, I, I have no real idea of what it would have felt like for you at the age of nine, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, you're, so intelligent enough to understand when parents leave and come back and stuff for like that to suddenly... Mm-hmm. What? Like, I, how, how did you... Who did you stay with, you don't mind me asking? And did you understand yeah, sure. the full scope of what was actually happening at that point? My son is 10 years old. And that was the age that I was when my mom left. So it wasn't, when my dad left, I was still okay. Because my mom was still there. When my mom left, I was the eldest of four siblings. So definitely very aware of it. Um, the other siblings joined mom and dad. I was supposed to join them. And then it took, then it took nine years of not seeing my mom and siblings, but saw my dad every year. So it was really, I understood it. But again, growing up, children were seen and not heard. So you don't really ask, why am I not? You just accept. You don't really ask us, oh, but dad, why? Your mom, why? Auntie, why? You don't, you just told and you went with it. It's only years later, when I was an adult at 18, that I was asking certain questions like, why was I left in Nigeria? Why? So in that time where it was just seen but not heard, mm-hmm. you I think you live with family? Yeah, I was. So my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, um, yeah, I grew up with them. And I went to boarding school as well. So um Did boarding school help make it feel less different that your parents weren't there because you wasn't in the house all the time? Possibly. But also boarding school, I think they wanted me not to feel so left out. They wanted me to have a certain standard of living, of life, was the reason they sent me to a private boarding school 
um, quite life was quite comfortable. Life was fun. And some of those friends I'm still friends with today. Um, yeah, some of those friends I'm still friends with today. That's interesting. So you mentioned that you clearly didn't react to it in a positive way in your teens. Mm-hmm. But was did that just suddenly appear or was it just over a period of time? Your dad kept coming back. You're, you know, you're thinking, why are my siblings been taken over there? And they just left me like, what have I done? Like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just trying to understand where your head was at because I don't think I would have dealt with that rationally. I don't think, as eloquent as I can be now, mm. I am not the same person I was as a child. I was bad. I was mouthy i was i was a spoiled child that's i'll call it what it is right i was a spoiled child and to sort of think that mum's just left me mm. what's going on here that i i what what oh that's coming back cool that's not my guy yeah i i want mummy yeah why are you taking my siblings yeah what about me yeah oh but you're good boarding school i don't care <laughs> i want my family why yeah. have i been and you may not have been articulate to say the word, but why have I been abandoned? Why have I been left behind? Yeah, yeah. Was it something where over a period of time that built up or was it that you was just kind of, this is just how things run until you got to your teenage years? I think I just accepted things. I think growing up, you just accept things just the way things are. But as a teenager, that thing of like, hang on a minute, why am I here? And then my friends would be like, ah. Oh, feel sorry for you like where are your family I think at that point you know teenagers are not you know they they say it as it is don't they so um at that point I started to feel oh yeah that is true why am I the only one here and then actually I partly knew it wasn't my parents fault because we had gone for visa application many times and been rejected so at one point actually I thought I don't even care if I go to see my family or not I'm fed up of the expectation oh I'm going this year and then it doesn't happen well I'm going this year it doesn't happen so I, at one point, I just thought, I don't care, actually, if it happens or not. Um, but yeah, the anger was definitely there, the abandonment feeling. And I know when I talk to my parents about it, they say now that, you know, we're, we're sorry. We didn't, it wasn't our plan, it wasn't our intention, but that was what happened due to the hostile, you know, immigration rules at the time. They do apologise. Because actually, there were four siblings that went to the High Commission, the British High Commission. And how could you give a visa to three children? So imagine you go with three, four siblings, and you decide to give three, but not the other one. Why? That doesn't even make sense. I think you're, you're the way you're talking about it now is in such a positive way that I struggle to think that you came to this conclusion in a very straightforward, streamlined way. I feel like there's something there where you had to, you went through. So, but if you didn't, that's fine. It's just my, it's just me as an individual thinking mm-hmm. I would have felt some sort of way or just accepted for what it is. Then as soon as I get that awareness that, hang on, I've been left here. Yeah, but we going for a visa. And then, like you said, your expectation kind of, weaned after a while because like oh, i'm going this year it never happened oh, i'm going this year it never happened you know what i'm good if it happens it happens if it doesn't it does you know let me just tell myself it's not going to yeah. happen because i'll be less disappointed exactly. if it does happen yeah do you think then for you having 
to change your level expectations around that aspect of your life mm-hmm. had an impact on your social life and how you um, approach life in general? Do you mean at the time when I was younger or now? Yeah, you know, when you're younger, because like I said to you, if, yeah. you, if, you, if you're yeah. just, whatever, if it happens, it happens. Mm-hmm. If you're having that attitude about seeing your family, who clearly you loved and cared and wanted to be with, yeah. did that translate over into your personal and social life and potentially professional life, depending on your age? Yeah, so by that time, I was, uh, you know, yeah, it did, because I just thought, I'm just going to live my life. I don't care, like. Yeah, if it happens, yeah. If not, I'm good. So I had to learn to adjust my expectation and actually just say, I can't be bothered to get my hopes up every time and then nothing happens. So you know what? I'm just going to live my life. This is where I am. I'm just going to live it and enjoy it. So I think I did have to get to that place where I'm like, forget it. I don't care. You know, but that could also be a defense mechanism because I'd been my expectation had always been crushed. You know, each time I expect, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to meet my family. I'm going to jump. And then, no, you're not going, you're not going. So it was a way of helping me cope. So it was a coping mechanism. But actually, years later, one thing I did do was go through therapy because I realised that that feeling of abandonment was still there. And if I didn't go through therapy, I was going to go through a life being overprotective of my children because I never wanted them to experience what I experienced. So I had to go through therapy too and counselling just to help understand that feeling of abandonment and what that was about. Yeah. So that I could parent my children better. And how old were you when you went get counselling? Oh, grown. I was like 30s. Okay. So so that was something you identified within yourself that you needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So, as a child, parents left you. It's the norm. Not not a personal thing. It is what it is. The high commission just didn't sign off on the fourth one. It's weird, but they did mm-hmm. what they did. Mm-hmm. You then had a bit of a rocky teens. Did you get good grades at the end of it, or were your grades yeah. impacted? Yeah, I was an A star student. I always remained an A star student, but I do think that. My career choices might have been influenced differently if maybe my parents were around because I was the one making decisions. There was no parent helping me. So I just chose the easiest ones and the things I was good at and just went with that. Um, and now I do look back and think, actually, my mom was here. She loved science subjects. She loved, she probably would have encouraged me to maybe become a doctor or a lawyer or all those things that in our communities they parents believe that they're like five professions doctor lawyer engineer <laughs> an accountant an architect or something else yeah i probably would have gone down one of those paths yeah because a lot of my cousins did so yeah that probably would have happened to be fair so when you finally came over to the uk mm-hmm. what was your relationship with your parents like mm, interesting initially it was great because i was like yeah finally get to join them but then i had two siblings i'd never met before so what they hang on so so it was still hang on, hang on, what? <laughs> so my parents had two children when they got to the uk so i had two siblings i'd never met that just adds extra layers it to does. this it does. did you know about them before you came over here yeah i did i did yeah 
Did you feel some? Okay, so when you found, did you find out when you were still in Africa at that point? Yeah, yeah. How did you feel when you heard that? Ah, oh, mommy's just had a baby. Uh, there's nothing I could do. The thing is that I just so when I came, my youngest sibling was um, he was one, I was eighteen. Now, at that time, it was at the time of teenage pregnancies, and there were teenagers with buggies all over the place. I remember pushing my younger sibling and someone said, is that your baby? I was like, no, what? like, what? <laughs> my thought was absurd because at that time I was like, yeah, I'm going to uni. I got my life to live. Like, what? Is that your little, no way. Like, that is my brother. <laughs> it's like, the thought was so absurd. Like, the thought for me, because of course at that time, England was like the teenage capital, teenage pregnancy capital of the world. I mean, you know, um, so there were lots of teen babies and I was like, no way. Like, no, that's my sibling. That's no way that's my child. But I do wonder if those things led me to getting married quite young because I ended up getting married at 21. Okay. So not long after you came to the UK. Yeah. yeah. Ended up getting married at 21. So I do wonder if, as I think back and reflect on my life, um, I do wonder if that led to me getting married at 21. It sounds like you're a very resilient person and you've taken things in your stride. I honestly say that you probably dealt with it a lot better than I would have done. And I commend you for it. Um, it seems like even though you 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 handled it in a very commendable way, clearly it was taking a toll on you for why years later, you know, maybe a decade after you got married, you said, I need to go find a therapist. I, I, yeah. There's some baggage here that needs to be unpacked. And I'm not sure if I'm capable to. I'm just holding it at the moment. I can't deal with this. I I think that's good. Do you do you think that if you were with your parents from the from the go, mm -hmm. they'll issue the four tickets, you came over mm -hmm. here, other than the career that you was doing, do you think that your relationship with your family with all your siblings, including your parents, obviously. Do you think that would be very different to what it is now? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. Because I know for a long time I struggled to bond with my mum because um, I didn't see her for those nine years. And even now, um, yeah, I wouldn't say we have the best relationships or, or the best of relationships. And I know people who had a similar story to mine. Some a lot, some of them don't talk to their families because they just feel like the pain is too much. And they, yeah, some of them don't have that relationship with their families. Personal question. Mm -hmm. And feel free not to answer this if you don't feel comfortable. Are you upset at the fact you don't have the type of relationship you could have had with your mum? No, I'm not upset. Um, I'm not upset. I think I, I probably have, because I, I say to her that, you know, you missed out on all the informative years. You missed out on me starting my first period and getting my first boyfriend and 
all those formative years. And she was like, it wasn't really my fault. And so I, I get that. But we, you know, I wouldn't call my mom and say, hey, mom, you know, this is happening. So, yeah. So, no, I'm not, I'm not upset. I wish it was different, but it's just the way it is. Um, I, now I might call my dad and I'll say, oh, dad, this, you know. Um, but I'm, and my siblings, we do have a, probably a closer relationship. Especially over the years, we, we have this, yeah, we built this relationship. And I think now that I'm in a slightly different season of my life, we're going through a relationship breakdown. I, I think I've tended to lean on them a little bit more than maybe I, I did in the past 20 years. So, so yeah, so a different kind of relationship that I have with them now. Um, yeah. Because when I came over, I was 18. I was, I was grown, so to speak, you know. Um, but what's really interesting, my, my, um, my ex-husband used to say that we have certain similarities, which I didn't see because, of course, me looking in, you don't see that. Certain mannerisms, he would say, oh, that mannerism is there. And you're like, how? And this is where I guess they say blood is thicker than water because we've not grown up together to build that, but they were there. Which is really interesting. So in that regards, I'm thinking you went through a lot. Your relationship with your parents isn't potentially what it would have been if you'd been together from the jump. Your relationship with your siblings, thankfully, is intact and seems to be getting you through a lot of things. And you just genuinely enjoy your company, which is fantastic. Looking back... And this is more so for people that don't fully understand the whole Windrush Generations type of stuff. Mm-hmm. What, What's your takeaway from the impact for the families that were part of the Windrush Generations compared to what is televised? Because in televised, it's kind of like, oh, these immigrants just came over and took jobs that we, we wanted to work and stuff like that. But hearing what you've just said and me knowing what I know about my mum and my uncle and aunt stuff like that, for me, it sounds like there were people that left to go to a country that they were told they were allowed to go to because that was like the motherland because similar, same passport sort of thing. And they weren't issued the full quota of visas for all their kids, only a select few. This now impacts your relationship with your family and not just now, sorry, not just then, but even now as a grown woman which means that it could potentially impact on your children and their relationship with their grandparents. So what had Windrush, again, this is what TV promotes. This is your experience of it and many others that you've probably known that have been in similar situations. Mm-hmm. How has it impacted you and how has it impacted others from what you know? I think the way I've seen it is the, the injustice of it. You know, and um, when we think about families who were separated, who came to this, to the motherland, expecting to be accepted, and they were turned away with the signs, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, you know, meeting this hostile environment where they left their warm, lovely country to come here and work extremely hard. And, and a lot of them were separated from their children. Like I mentioned, this dramatization called Nine Night, um, of 
and, and actually, although it was about the whole idea of the nine nights celebration that takes place when someone passes away, but I remember seeing that of a child who the mom had come as part of the window generation. She was left in in Jamaica, and then her the mom then had sibling um, had children here. She couldn't relate to those siblings. She, you know, had a different relationship, and it's that whole thing of families being torn apart. So the the some of the legacies of Windrush's devastation of families and family units of relationships that probably are still sour up to this day. Um, but also then that repeats itself because then if a child does might not have great relationship with their parents, then it might pass on to generation where the next generation does the same. Oh, I'm not close to my parents. It doesn't really matter if my child is not close to me. So I think the impact is much greater than we really give it credit for, how it's devastated lives and families and tore them apart. But then also when those Windrush came to the UK, they didn't get the jobs. They couldn't have access to those jobs. They were treated. There was a lot of racism in their face. A lot of churches turned them away. Um, so many things happen in the name, sadly, of them coming to the motherland. I think, and that's why some people are still angry today because of that, because actually lives where some people died because they were trying to fight for their right, you know, um, to have a passport. So I think the issue is far more deeper than the, what we see on television. And these people coming to take our jobs because I know, again, that was something, but that's simply not true because they were invited over here. They didn't come to take anyone's job. They were invited. To do those jobs. To do those jobs and to help rebuild the UK after the walls. And so for them to meet that hostile environment um, is it's actually really sad to see. And it's what led me. So another thing I do at the moment is really that whole conversation about diversity and inclusion because in schools, but also in companies, because I want people to think about does everyone feel included? Do they belong? Do Are they accepted? And I was doing a talk with school leaders um, last week and I was really asking them those questions. Do children in your school feel that they're accepted? Do they feel that they belong? Do they feel that if they have an issue, they can come to you as the teacher to help resolve those issues? So it's really led me to asking those difficult questions about 50 years down the line, are people do people feel accepted and welcome even today? Yeah. So appreciate you answering that so going back you're at the most frustrated most delinquent version of yourself because of your situation mm-hmm. what would you say to yourself going back knowing now what you do going back talking to your younger self and going hey Chioma, right i should have done that i'm so sorry i should be deadly serious there but you know going back in time seeing yourself and saying like seeing all the bad things that you're conducting yourself, like how unhealthily conducting yourself, what would you say to yourself to help you turn that corner so that you no longer react that way and go on the right trajectory? Well, that's a deep question. Um, And actually, I think those things were the things that helped me, even in that time, people that believed in me, people, some relatives that go alongside me that would encourage me, like in my studies, to keep on going. I think those things, remembering that I was worth, I was valuable, despite my parents not being there, despite that feeling that I felt 
and there were people rooting for me, people cheering me on, um, despite how difficult things were at that moment. So that's why I would say that things will work out, you will learn and you will grow. Because I would say I'm, I'd say resilient, but also very independent as a result of that. Um, that there are some good lessons that you can take away from this experience, although it looks really difficult and hopeless. And, um, but yeah, you will come through and you will use this in the future to help other parents with their children. And do you think you would have heard yourself at that point? Do you think you would have been receptive to that information? <laughs> Absolutely not. But what I was receptive to was the love and the kindness from people who took time out to mentor me, to get alongside me, that paid dividends. And that's why now I give back to young people and I make time for young people and I coach. And yeah, because I believe that every young person might be going through whatever they're going through, but a bit like what you said about you as a young person, you know, I think just that even for parents to also say that that child might be, you know, like the worst teenager on earth, but for them to look beyond that behavior, whatever they're going through, to know that they'll come through, come out on the other side. And there's hope for that delinquent teenager that seems like, and there's no hope or future for them, that they will get through this difficult season. And this season will pass. It's not forever. And helping parents remember that, because I think as parents, all we see is the moment right now, but this is why I always say it takes a village to raise children because that village will see what you might not see as a parent, whether it's a youth worker or whether it's the teacher at school who believes in that young person or even uncles and aunties around. They see something that you as a parent might not see because all you might see is that behaviour from that your teenager right now who's not listening, who feels they know everything, who feels like, you know, they're the business or whatever, you know, but actually as that, other adults you can speak into their life you can help them to believe in themselves and to come through that difficult season yeah no i hear you on that so just to summarize if that wasn't an l what was it i think it was an l but with now i've been able to see the positive side of it that has helped me, shaped me to who I am today, who loves young people and, think, and believes in young people that actually every young person is full of potential, has so much to give and offer the world and themselves. Um, and makes me so much empathetic to young people. So I have a lot of young people that I've mentored over the years. Some I've known since they were 14 and some of them are in their 30s. Makes me feel old. But it, it just, yeah, it, it's it's been great to go on that journey with them and seeing them on the other side, now parents, you know, and now wives, husbands, many young women actually, but seeing them on the other side of the 14 year old rebellious team and seeing them doing really well for themselves and their families, it's great. It makes me feel proud like a parent too. So, yeah. That's fantastic. And keep doing the great work you're doing because I guess you will never know the full, the full extent of all the great work you're doing. And sometimes it's great that we don't know the full extent of what we do because it keeps us grounded and keeps us humble and earnest in what we do. So, no, much appreciate for sharing. And let's jump into your next L. This is going to be a bit of a heavy one, but I think it needs to be heard. Mm-hmm. Wasn't selected for certain jobs due to racism, etc. 
I think most people that are listening will understand that. And mm-hmm. I actually have had an episode with someone I did talk about racism mm-hmm. regarding not only their complexion, but before they even got to that, their name mm-hmm. was a dead giveaway. Mm-hmm. Please tell me your story, where you'd like to start from, and we'll have a conversation around it. Well, I was actually talking to someone about this. I said that today, that I know that in my career, I have not been offered certain jobs, even though I've been qualified. Because I know people will say something like, oh, you know, we have equal access to opportunities. But I always say, mm, I disagree because on paper, I have this years of experience and this qualification. However, when my CV is presented and someone sees my name, all they think is, is this person going to be a good fit? We can't even say their name. And they don't even try. I remember when I was trained to be a teacher, I used to say to children, oh, I've got this really difficult name. And they'd be like, miss, no, you don't. Like, we can say it. And this is why I think that children are so much more open to learning. Whereas we as grown up, we see it and we just think, I can't say that name. And they don't try. Well, a child will try and be like, oh, yeah, I can say it. Children, you know, this is why I say children are so much more resilient. And so there's a job I went for. And I know, although I wasn't told, I know that that was the reason I didn't get the job. Because the excuse was, you haven't got... Actually, they couldn't even say experience because I had the experience. They picked on one tiny part of the experience and said, this particular thing you don't have. But I was like, I can learn. But I knew it was to do with my name and me not being a good fit for the organisation. Um, And that's another reason that I'm going into the work around inclusion and diversity or EDI. Um, because I think it's important for us to understand more about equity, diversity and inclusion, to bring that table for everyone, you know, um, that seat at the table for everyone, but also um, it's really important to have that conversation. So it was something I started off probably 2020 or before when I moved to a suburb of London and I noticed that, it was not as diverse as where we I had lived with my children, um, and we experienced some race. I experienced some racism. My my youngest seven year old he did at the time as well. It was called the racist term, and I noticed that when at school by another seven year old, and the school didn't deal with it correctly. Um, and I remember talking to the teacher and the head about it. But it got me really thinking, okay, how can we be part of the change? Not just for me, but for my children. Um, and so started having that conversation on social media. I remember during the pandemic, there was an incident that took place. Of um, I'd gone to the post office and it was during the time where we were all not really allowed to go out, but we could go to the post office. So I was frequenting post office. And... There was a guy behind me and I sort of turned around to say hi to him. And he was like, I'm not trying to be funny. And I was like, okay, here we go. What's he about to say? And he said, you foreigners are the cause of COVID. Now, this was the time that they were clapping for the NHS. But I have a lot of family members who work in the NHS. So a lot of them are like doctors and um, nurses and pharmacists and and but really working in healthcare and they'd worked flat out during the pandemic but yet they weren't getting a pain increase they were being clapped for and i was like 
forget the clap, just give them money. And so when he said it, I turned around and I said, listen, I said, this person, I listed off and I was like, this person's worked flat out during the pandemic, saving lives as a nurse. This person as a pediatric doctor, saving children's lives and this and this. And by the time I reeled it all off, he was quiet. But, and I remember posting on social media and people were like, oh no, that's not true. I said, what do I stand to gain by making up a story like that? And this is the whole thing about gaslighting people's experience because actually it was my experience. But also when I talked about my younger son and the experience he had received at school, again, people were like, no, they're children, they're seven, they can't say things like that. I said, well, my son was cool with that. And, but it got me thinking, how can we be part of the change? So in the school, I'd gone in and I asked as part of the Black History Month to really um, run a session on um, cooking. So we did. We looked at foods, things like planting, where does it grow, what countries we found in, and cooked, and the children got a chance to really experience how we had conversations about geography and, you know, just some really interesting conversation. But one thing I realised was that it wasn't just about the children being educated, it was also about the leadership of the school. And that's where then, because I think when a leader, when the change has to happen from leadership, because actually if it doesn't, it's harder for it to be embedded in the culture of the school. So that led me then to start writing a book on anti-racism, um, but also um, now running workshops for schools and school leaders primarily on how can every child in their school be included um, and feel that they belong as well. That's that's a lot. So. I, I know how I feel about racism. I've experienced it. Um, but for those that don't believe it's a real thing or a common thing in today's society, how do you how do you handle that? Because actually, let's go back. You mentioned the term gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Just in case people aren't aware what the term gaslighting actually means, please educate them. Um, because I didn't, I've got a question around it, but I just want to just allow you the time to. Okay. So gaslighting for me is erasing someone's experiences. So like I mentioned, I had this, or my son had this racist term called, and actually the people who say it didn't happen, you're erasing his experience because there he was called a racist term in class, wasn't dealt with correctly, but by you saying it didn't exist, you're gaslighting it or you're minimizing. That's the other thing that we get people saying, oh, actually they didn't mean it wasn't that bad or it was just banter or it was just um, us just having fun. You're too sensitive or you're race baiting or you're, you know, those are some of the things that people say. So really minimizing and erasing someone's lived experience of something that is quite traumatic, that has an impact on things like their mental health for you to Minimize and say it didn't happen. That's gaslighting. So in that situation, how do you support your son? As young as he is, a lot of my friends, co-workers, whoever, who are white, will probably say, I don't teach my kids anything about colour because, you know, don't want to see colour. Okay, cool. Not everyone's that way. Just saying a select few of them have said this to me. And I've had a similar conversation I'm going to have now. but because certain groups of people are not having conversation about colour in a positive way, there are still conversation being had about colour 
in a not so positive way, which leads to comments being made to your child. One, how did that impact you when you heard about it? And two, how did it impact your son? Three, how did you support him in that? And sorry for quick, quiet questions, but it's just just hoping to get them out of my head while I remember them. Okay. So how did I handle it? So when I heard it, I was like, let's get down to the school. We're dealing with this now. Because for me, I didn't want him not, I didn't want him to hate school and refuse to go because of that. Because sometimes when children report incidents like this, parents might say things like, just turn a blind eye to it. But for me, I knew that he, he was a child that loved school. And if it wasn't dealt with, it could turn into bullying and then he would hate going to school. And so I was down at the school because I remember when we took the place at the school, I noticed that there was a lack of diversity. And I asked the school business manager, she was like, oh, there is no uh, racism here. And I thought, okay, let's see what happens. So, of course, a few months down the line, three months or so, it happened. So I marched straight down to office and I said, um, do you remember this conversation that we had? But again, they, the, at the time, the leadership at that school didn't understand it, didn't deal with it correctly. Because what they did, they investigated and they said, actually, your son said to the other child that he looks like a girl. And the other boy's response was, because he had long hair. Again, gendered, you know, conversation, prejudice, which, again, I could pull him up for. But actually, the school then focused on what he had said first, rather than this term that was used. He was called, and I don't know if I can say it, um, he was called Black Poop, basically. And I found that offensive because I thought that is a derogatory term. So I then went about educating the children. But as I said, I realized that the key was not just to educate the children, but actually the leadership team so that they can deal with it better. And I'm thankful that today, because of those conversations, they now have a new head who's gone from a more diverse part of town. The school are looking at things like, I remember asking them, like even in their books that they have, their diversity of authors there. And actually when one lead school leader did a book audit, he was like, I've never considered it before. But actually we have we lack diversity in the books that we have even in our classroom. But he said I would never have considered it. It was all written by middle class white men. And don't get me wrong, I have some middle class white men who are great people, but there needs to be a diversity of authors, of illustrators. And so what I did last year was I invited a black illustrator to come in because I said, when you think of illustrators, you don't think of a black man. And so I wanted the children to see a complete different representation of people in the community and in society as well. So how did I deal with it was to definitely approach the leadership. <laughs> um, how did I, how did he deal with it? He told me about it and I said to him, I said, we come from a very diverse family. So in um, the dad's family, they have we have all sorts. We've got white British, we've got Filipinos, we've got um, Caribbean, got African. So there was a real diversity in the family. And I always used to say to him, and even when that incident happened, I said, it's such a good thing that you're used to diversity because you know you've got all these different cousins who are all different races, but actually... We're still one. And I hope you realise that the incident that took place doesn't reflect who you are, that you are an amazing child. And so really try to reaffirm him and um, 
And actually now he told me recently that he challenged a boy who said something um, racist and between himself and a few friends, they educated this boy on why what he said was racist. So now this is him a few years later. I was actually proud of him for that. And you should be proud of yourself as well because you helped encourage that change, that you helped him to take control of the situation in a safe way and hopefully this will go and have continuous ripple effects in a positive manner. Yeah, yeah. I was really proud when he said, oh yeah, me and my friends, we went on to educate this boy who said, it was an Asian boy and he said something and he said himself and a few of his friends who were white, they educated this Asian boy on why what he said was problematic. And I was like, well done, son. I was proud. <laughs> I was like, I felt really proud of him. Like he could stand up to it. Yeah. That is fantastic. That is really good. There's a situation that happened. Um, and I think a lot of people know about it because it was the Euros, I want to say. Where, oh, yeah, last summer. Yeah, and then we had, um, we had certain football players take the last three kicks and didn't score and got held a whole heap of abuse. Yeah, so my work decided to talk about on the Friday before the Sunday it was going to happen, oh, we're cheering for England to, you know, to bring it home and stuff like that. Yeah, it didn't happen. Monday, we were in the office for various reasons. Tuesday, we were in the office. Did anyone say even boo? Nah. I felt some sort of way about it. I found out we've got a blog. So I wrote a blog on our internet page, just not in a disrespectful manner, but just to try and communicate. And, and I did speak to my leadership team locally as well about it. And I said, it hurts. The The silence is deafening because when you listen to the history in general, when you're in school, there's only a small amount of black people or people of colour that was ever mentioned. And they had to do something extremely spectacular before they even made it into the history book. So I'm talking about Gandhi, I'm talking about Nelson Mandela, like them type of feats that you're going to have to achieve. And even then you're only getting a little five minute chat about it and the rest of it is like, let's move on to, I don't know, someone else that is a white middle-class individual. And it's all like, right. So you look at someone like Marcus Rashford, who did all that he did over the pandemic and just because he didn't get an inflated ball of air in the back of a net, he's going to be called everything under the sun that you would look down upon. And you're thinking, he probably fed a whole heap of these people's children. Yeah. Something the parents couldn't even do themselves, but they found themselves at a football match. That, that's another topic altogether. And you just belittled him to the complexion of his skin. Some of these people are going to be teachers. Some of these mm -hmm. people are going to be bus drivers. Some of these people mm -hmm. are going to be your boss. Some people are going to be whatever. Yeah. And when people belitt when people don't say anything about it, it makes, or at least for me, it makes me feel like I, I am blowing things out of proportion. I even broke it down further and said to him, if I was on the street and I had my bag that had everything in it, I had my life in it and someone mugged me and everyone could see I was getting mugged and they took my bag and they ran and I'm just like screaming and sobbing and everyone says, well, it's not like I took your bag. 
no, you didn't take my bag, but the fact you didn't contribute towards telling them what they're doing is wrong or try and help me in that situation tells me your silence is complicit. Yeah, absolutely. And that led to us having a bigger conversation about it. But I said to them, and I was trying to be very clever with it, there's something that we do around domestic violence. And I said, I understand racism is a very hard thing to pinpoint and say, this is what racism is. However, you have a fantastic program around domestic violence and you understand domestic violence cannot be boiled down to a simple sum. It's not just this where they're a black icon, this where they don't have their passport, this where their their confidence is shot. It's a it's a, a series of different scenarios that could easily fit into a certain narrative that plays out to be this could be domestic violence. You do a fantastic job of that. Now, all I'm asking you to do is apply that same science to racism. Because I'm mm-hmm. sure if someone says, oh my gosh, I've had domestic violence, cool, let's take it off, let's deal with you, can someone else deal with her workload or his workload? Cool. But if I'm saying, and it this, ha- this did actually happen outside my office, someone did say, oh, it's because of you lot why we didn't win the World Cup, right? Do you think they got any support? One of the black managers just says, don't worry about it. Now, I know, and I've I've been very vocal about this, I said, I know that I don't talk about race a lot of the time just because I don't want to make other people uncomfortable. Comfortable, yeah. And when George Floyd happened and everything else since happened, it felt like every traumatic experience I have ever experienced, I had to rehash. And, you know, I had no therapy afterwards to help heal that again. So it was like picking scabs all the time and it was just hurting. Going through all that just made me feel like, right, I don't know how else to easily explain where their breakdown is in terms of lack of support. When they say, what can I do to support? It's not easy. I've just given you an example. You do a great job in domestic violence, apply the same energy to racism. I, It hurts me to think that my son may go through that and more likely will go through that. Yeah. Absolutely. I joke and say I can't afford to go to jail because of my I've got two other kids I've got to fend for, but depending on how things go, I will feel that way. And I encourage people who have children who may not be of colour to talk to them about colour because then if they don't know about colour, they don't they don't recognise underrepresentation in a space. Hmm. They what because they've never been told about colour or told about equality they will never notice that there's a lack of men in the room or a lack of women in the room or a lack of these people in the room because it's not necessarily... You mentioned before about what people bring to the table and stuff like that, but when you think about it, I'm not going to promote them because it's not that type of show, but there's mm-hmm. certain buffet places you can go to where they have variety of different foods there and they're That's mega right. successful because they embrace different cultures. That's right. The ones that focus on just one type of food, they'll get their food if you like that type of food. But if you want to say, oh, I'm going to go there, but I fancy Chinese or I fancy Thai or I fancy Indian or I fancy whatever, they're not catering for a whole heap of people and they're going to get more business. That's technically what employers should do, but they don't. For me, it personally kind of feels like a tick box exercise for the most part. You know, how many women have I got? How many black people have I got? How many mm-hmm. disabled people, visible or invisible? Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. If they can get one that ticks all boxes, they're like saying, ding, 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 I won the jackpot. Right, everyone else, the application, I'm sorry, the position has been filled. Actually, do you know what? Don't even send them an email. Just don't let them know that we filled the spot. And that is a rant, and I do apologise. 
but it's just race is a very big thing for me more so now because I have children that are mixed race and I don't want them to just think they're black because they're not just black what what they're comprised of is a multitude of different cultures that goes back further than myself and my wife and I want them to know that no absolutely and I think what you said is so important that parents of other need to speak to their children I remember I was delivering a talk at a school and this teacher said, oh, I came from a really diverse part of London. I used to always say I didn't see colour. And I was talking about how children see colour. So why do we say we don't see colour? And by you saying you don't see colour, you're almost, again, erasing that person's experience and that person's colour. Because that's the first thing you see. You see, I see you, you're a black man. That's the first thing I see. But if you say you don't see colour, so are you not acknowledging I'm a black person? So I think really having those difficult, I say it's, it's such an emotive and a difficult conversation, but we need to have it. But you know what excites me? I see that this gen, the younger generation are holding their parents to account. They are having those difficult conversations and challenging the stereotypes and challenging their parents. And so I encourage every one of us, whether you're black or white, speak to your children non-white, non-black, speak to your children about race and about colour. And it's okay, we, we, we make mistakes and we might get it wrong. But the fact that you're trying and you're speaking to your children is really important. So we all need to have that conversation with our families and those around us and call them out. That's very important. I think as well is where we're exposed to so much now, we should be able to understand better. If you don't know the answer, we can talk to Alexa, we can talk to Google, we can talk to whatever whatever is connected in our house to the internet or look on our phone and understand that our parents are not right. Even if they may still front like they're right, yep. one of those services will tell you they don't know the truth. It's They're just winging it. Because that's all parents do. We're just winging mm-hmm. it. <laughs> it's building the bridge while you're trying to walk across that same bridge. It's Some of it's planned out. A lot of it is just like, oh, please, God, just order my steps right now I need you to do me something right now but with the race stuff I think it's definitely important that you challenge people I was on a podcast many months ago and we'll talk about Christmas or holiday traditions and I said all four people having traditions I've got no problem with that but I said the concern I have for traditions and this was tied into the fact that I'm one of those people if everyone's talking about plan a being the best I'm there saying, what's wrong with plan B? You know, or everyone's going, plan B is the best. Well, what about plan C? Like, I, I'll always like to know what why everyone's focused on that one, not the other one. So when it's about tradition, we do this, we do that. I said, right, it's all good we're having tradition, but as long as you remember and understand why you're doing that thing, that's the important thing, because your child might come up to you and say, daddy, mummy, I don't want to do this no more. I want to do it this way. And you get vexed and tell them, no, it's always been done this way you potentially lost the essence of why you was doing it because you was doing it to bring the family together. But the reason, potentially, the child's asked to do this is because they want to contribute towards the tradition. But you're not seeing that. You're just seeing them that they're trying to take away from what you are doing, what you want to do. And that could be the same when it comes to race. We've always married into our own. We've always dated our own. Yeah, Probably, and there's probably a justified reason way back when. I can't justify it, if I'm honest, but maybe there was a reason. Yeah. But if here and now, what's your beef? Oh, because they're different and no one's getting lynched no more. 
well, some people are in various places of the world, that's unfortunate. But for the most part, in modern society, we're not seeing lynching going on like that because of one person's one colour, one person's another colour, or different ethnicity, um, different ethnicity from different countries, whatever. So you need to challenge. And even with tradition, challenge them. If you're doing something on a routinely basis and you did it because of X, Y, and Z reason, we need to challenge ourselves to make sure we're doing it for, with the right intentions and we're get, therefore getting the right results. Absolutely. And it is hard. And I think a lot of people think that when we talk about racism, we want to talk about racism as black people, people of colour, which we don't because it easily can single us out and have a target on our backs and all the same thing. Yeah, any progression I had within this company, yeah, yeah happening. Anytime I mention anything about colour, yeah, I've got a target on my back. And I just want people to know that it's hard. Yeah. It's yeah. hard. It's hard <laughs> being a person of colour in this country and in most countries um but because you're not necessarily believed in what you're saying and you feel like you can say the sky is blue and everyone else will tell you the sky is purple and because no one else is backing you on that you start doubting yourself and then that's where mental health could come along where people start doubting themselves and you don't know how to support and the easy way to support is to have that conversation as uncomfortable as it is yeah. have that conversation so i'll ask you when that situation happened with your son mm -hmm. did many people know about it um on social media yeah i shared it on social media did people reach out to you about it uh no the silence was definite actually yeah the silence was definite there were more people gaslighting saying oh this never happened than actually reach out to support. This was before Judge Floyd, to be fair. Yeah. But I think, because I do think that Judge Floyd was a watershed moment, so to speak, because for the first time people started to understand for the first time the experiences of, say, Black people, for instance. That it was almost like a, there was a shift in companies that for the first time people were putting up Black squares. I mean, two years on, I don't know. But yeah. at least for the first time, there was a little bit of an understanding. Because I think prior to that, there was a lot of, the talk was that we're not as bad in the in the UK. We're actually doing better than America and so many other countries of Europe. But I think in 2020, and with all the protests that took place, again, led by young people, this is why I'm an advocate for young people. It was the young people that led a lot of those protests. Um, people, so yeah, it was prior to George Floyd. So there wasn't, a lot of people reaching out. But I know now, if that happened now, I probably know that people will definitely empathise a little bit more with that situation. So no, not many people. But I think for me it was about continuing that conversation with my son, checking in with him, how was he doing? Um, how was he finding school? Had any incidents like that happen? And for him to say to him, you've got to speak up if something happens. Which is why I was so proud then when he spoke about three years on and him being able to challenge another young boy. So going back to when it all kicked off and you heard it in your Zach, what now? What would you have told yourself in terms of how to calm yourself down and to see a positive, like potentially like it's a learning experience. Like what would you have said to yourself to try and help you rationalise 
what your next course of action is going to be and how you can hopefully change the trajectory of where this was going? I think for me, I was like, this guy just needs a bit of education. He needs a... I don't condone violence, but he needs a on the bad side. But I was like, okay. For the record, she doesn't condone violence, but if the child had a black eye, he walked into a door. <laughs> yeah. No, I did not condone violence. No, we did not condone violence. But I just thought he it was a moment of education for him to be educated that perhaps he surrounded himself all his whole life thinking that foreigners are, again, people that read certain papers that are women nameless and watch certain programs that are women nameless, um, thinking foreigners were the cause of COVID, my goodness, like, so for me, I saw it as a moment to educate and re-educate for him to relearn and unlearn what he thought about foreigners. Um, and actually, statistically, I mean, we know that in the healthcare profession, it was mainly um, black people. And that's why more black people died, because they were the ones on the, on the, you know, on the floor dealing with the day-to-day loss of people, experienced a lot and saw a lot as well, lost loved ones and lost staff members as well. So I think just for me, I saw it as an opportunity, rather than getting cross and angry, I was like, actually, it's an opportunity to educate him. And that's what I've done since then to educate people and say, hey, have you considered this perspective that that thing you said, if the roles were reserved, uh, reversed rather, how would you feel about it? Put yourself in that person's shoe and acknowledge that we all have biases, but the key is acknowledging that we have it rather than denying the existence of bias, because we all have it. But it's, And that's one question I was asking t- the teachers and the leaders, do we acknowledge that we have it? Because if we acknowledge it, does it impact the way we teach? Does it impact the way we look at that child? Like, what children in your school are underperforming and why? The black boys? What children are being excluded? Is it the black boys that are being, And why are they being excluded? And so really helping people to unlearn and relearn um, in, their, in, in their profession, really. And that's why my book that I'm writing is called Catalyst for Change, How to Be an Anti-Racist Practitioner. Because I want, because we can all be part of that change, every single one of us, with the steps that we take daily. How can we be anti-racist and anti-oppressive in all that we do? That's encouraging. So with all that said, if it wasn't an L in terms of a loss, what was it? What would you chalk that up to being? I think it became a teachable moment. Um, there's a teachable moment is that they use that in youth work, working with young people, that when bad things happen. So, and I can use this analogy of a young person who gets caught up in criminality, an incident might happen that can become a teachable moment. This is an opportunity to change the trajectory of that young person's life. And I can see this, although it started off being an L, but it's a moment to teach other people, to educate so that people can learn and relearn things that they believe about racism and about the UK as a whole. I mean, it got me started. I remember going on a, a colleague of mine growing up in the UK, same age as me, was born here, white British. I remember asking him before George Floyd, I was like, what do you think about racism in the UK? He was like, oh, we're not that bad. And I, and for me, it was a moment, again, to educate him. So, of course, when George Floyd happened three months later, I was like, hey, have you seen this? And that was when he started to understand. Because I realised that for him, growing up in this suburb of, of London, he thinks it's not as bad. Because I said, you're well-travelled, you have friends around the world. 
what are your thoughts? And for him who is well-traveled to still believe it's not as bad, I realized that because it doesn't affect him, he doesn't see it. And so it was up to us who are experiencing it to speak out about it. And that's why with Euro 2020, it was the same. I was asking those difficult questions. Like, did you, was that the, the criticism they got, was it really necessary to target their race? you know, and forget all the amazing things those boys, young men had done and put pressure on them just because of their race. So, yeah. It is hard, but I, I get that. And I think for those people that are listening and still struggling, well, you're struggling, you're still listening, thank you. But if you're still struggling to understand, think of it this way. If if we able to put various different clothing on every day, have a roof overhead, put food on our table, when we see a homeless person on the street, we probably don't see that as being much of a problem because we see maybe one or two people because we're not looking for them. But if you look into the numbers, there's a whole heap of people that are homeless, that haven't got a roof over their head, that can't switch out their clothes, can't hold a shower anytime they want to. So, you know, just look at it that way. You may not be a person of colour, so you may not be able to relate, but you can look at someone that's homeless and realise, okay, I look like you, but I never really looked at you like that to notice it. Just like how sometimes you hear, but you're not listening. You're just hearing noise. You're not listening to what's being said. So, no, I greatly appreciate for you jumping on and sharing like you have. Um, this next part, I'm going to ask you to unashamedly plug yourself, plug what you got going on, where you're going to be, how people can reach out to you and tap you up for that book when that book's finished. Um, yeah, go ahead. Your, your time is now. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you. It's been great just sharing and speaking. Um, so follow me on social media, um, choma.fanaopa on Instagram, choma.fanaopa on Twitter, and on LinkedIn, choma.fanaopa. So follow me um, and reach out if I can support you as a parent. So you're a parent. I have some experience of... Um, and I have my own 17-year-old, so leave the experience of professional experience of supporting parents and young people. So reach out, um, able to offer some coaching and um and yeah, an opportunity to help you support yourself as you raise your children. Um so yeah, follow me on all social media platforms and um the work that I do. And I look forward to supporting you, but also look forward to having those difficult conversations and challenging us to relearn and unlearn and grow you know that we do no much appreciate so for everyone else thank you very much for taking the time to listen to this conversation it was a heavy one it wasn't necessarily the direction you're looking to go into but i think there's so much positive things taken from that um in society we stray away from difficult conversation because it makes us feel uncomfortable but what's the phrase i've never met a strong person with an easy pass so anyone that you come across who is a strong person in your eyes, trust me, they've been through the wars. And here we're fortunate enough to have guests come on and tell you how they got some of these battle scars and what they represent in their lives and how they're able to keep going forward. You may be going through your own wars. If you want to reach out, reach out. I'm happy to have that conversation with you. If you're happy to share, we'll share. If you want to keep it offline, we'll keep it offline. I've got no problem with that. But I don't want you to feel like you're alone. And it's just a matter of letting know that you're not the only one going through difficulties or challenging situations. We all do. Sometimes things can feel absolutely rough, but just look at it this way. Sandpaper makes things smooth. And sandpaper is rough. 
you know, you, you, there's so many analogies I could use to help you understand that what you're going through now is not the end of it. If you nothing, if you're surrounded by nothing but darkness, just remember there's got to be a light source that's casting a shadow. So just keep walking around until you find that light source. And sometimes you need other people to just point you in the right directions. But I say all that to say, do what you're doing. It's okay to feel what you're feeling, but just know that your right now is not your forever. And there's nothing about a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. So I wish you nothing but the best. Look after yourself. Come find me on every old podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Um, if you come up to me on Instagram, I normally do stories every now and again to get a little bit of exclusive content out there. But I look forward to seeing you guys in the next one. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please drop it a review and a like. Five stars, ideally. But, you know, do less if you really want. But thank you very much once again, and I'll speak to you in the next one. Take care.